Welcome to a new episode of Talking With You, the podcast where the student's point of view matters to the students, for the students, and by the students. At the same time, it seeks to give the students an open and safe space to discuss the topics that concern us the most. And this year, we have some personnel change with some new team members, just like today's host, Silvia Bagnuolo, from the Science Communications team. A very warm welcome to you, Silvia. Hello everyone, thank you Daniele, and I'm Silvia, and will be your host for today. In today's session, we will discuss a topic that symbolizes the urgent hope for a better life within the EU by millions of people in Europe. But on the other side, when it comes to actual progress, there is a lot of desperation and anger among those countries' nationals. You were guessing right, today we're going to talk about the EU's neighborhood policy. But before we dive into this complex but interesting topic, let me welcome our two guests of today, Lucas Schäfer, second year master student at the IEE. Hello. And Maicon Bellavia, president of SAIES. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming today. A big welcome from me as well. We are very glad that you could join us today to discuss this very interesting topic. When it comes to EU neighborhood policy, the question is always where to start. First of all, to clarify, neighborhood policy comprises a number of different policy areas. But today we want to focus particularly on the enlargement policy of the EU. Currently, there are eight candidate countries to become member states, meaning countries that have qualified for the negotiation about EU membership but still need to fulfill certain criteria before a vote can be taken by the EU. These include Montenegro, Serbia, Turkey, North Macedonia, Albania, and starting this year, Ukraine, Moldova, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. While the EU leaders have committed to offer those countries a perspective, any attempts for further enlargement either failed due to insufficient progress by the candidate country or a political blockage due to the unanimity vote requirement in the European Council. To pick up where Daniela left off, those candidate countries must fulfill certain criteria, namely the Copenhagen criteria. In short, those demand for their respective countries stable political institutions guaranteeing democracy, the rule of law, human rights and the respect and protection of minority. Also, those countries need a functioning market economy as well as administrative and institutional capacity to implement union law and its obligations. While some countries have been since then working on fulfilling those criteria, other countries have been leaving more and more the path of accession, such as particularly Turkey. Since the failed Turkish coup d'etat, relations have seriously deteriorated between Turkey and the EU, leading to several resolutions of the European Parliament, but as well as several political leaders calling for a suspension of the accession talks. At the same time, President Erdogan is repeatedly threatening to quit the EU accession process. To start with my first question, what future do you see for Turkey and the EU? In the EU as a future member state country or in in it as a framework of a privileged partnership. Let me start with you, Lucas. Thank you for the question and the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. So the situation with Turkey shows the central dilemma of EU enlargement policy. It's a mix of an administrative framework and geopolitics. So starting with the geopolitics, to quote the director of the DG Near at a conference last month, the EU is learning the language of geopolitics right now. So to be honest, I don't have a special opinion on the framework of a privileged partnership, but it depends on the concrete framework. But I would say two things. First, uh, concerning the administrative side of the coin, 
Bitcoin, the enlargement process for Turkey is, is in my opinion at a dead end. But concerning the geopolitical necessity to have strong relations concerning migration, security or economy, there is indeed a need for a partnership, whatever is the concrete design. To bring up another key feature of EU enlargement policy, it has always been, it is and probably it will always be a mainly reactive policy. So it depends on the will of the actors and the development in the countries. So in this sense, even if the EU perspective of Turkey seems dark right now, it still depends on the evolutions in the country. Thank you, Lucas. Michael, now, what do you think about that? Blurring future, definitely. I do think that Turkey has been a candidate for so long and progress has been slow. However, I do think that the idea of a privileged partnership is something very hard to be realized. Since, first of all, what must be stressed is that the concept of a privileged partnership is not included in the European law. So that it means that some amendments to the existing European treaties have to be called into consideration. Secondly, I do think reflecting on this future relationship that an interesting element to, to put into the table is that of analyzing public opinion. Public opinion in both Turkey and European Union play a role in shaping the future of relationship. European member states public opinion is fundamental because it matters and because has the European accession process involves the agreement of all member states, the views of their population can deeply influence the willingness of the state to accept Turkey as a member. When it comes to the enlargement process in the Western Balkan area in total, there has been a limited amount of progress in the recent decade. Serbia and Montenegro have hung in there since the beginning of the last decade, and for Bosnia-Herzegovina as well as North Macedonia, the negotiations just started last year. It needs to be said that these openings of the accession talks had a run-up of preparations that lasted for several years. So in that sense, I wonder, why does the West Balkan area represent such a strategic significance for the EU, and why hasn't there been more progress when it comes to bringing the Western Balkans closer to the Union? With this in mind, my question is, what needs to be done And if it isn't being done, why is it so? So what I do think is that definitely the Western Balkans hold strategic importance for European Union for so many different reasons. Just to take into consideration few of them, stability and security, promotion of democratic values, economic opportunities and geostrategic consideration. However, despite the strategic importance, progress in the accession process to the EU has been slow. To make progress, According to my own opinion, several actions can be considered. First of all, strengthen reforms. Western Balkan countries need to continue and accelerate reforms in areas such as the rule of law, anti-corruption measures and economic governance to meet European standards. Secondly, resolve its internal regional disputes. And thirdly, to engage in effective communication and public diplomacy. I do think also that, for example, supporting civil society could be an instrument to promote democratic values, human rights and good governance that can contribute to positive social and political changes in the region. Thank you, Maiken. And what's your angle on that, Lucas? So to start, let me remind that the European perspective for the Western Balkans has been given in Thessaloniki in uh, the year 2003. So it's 20 years ago and it's a long period. So to answer your question, let me come back to the two specificities of EU enlargement policy I mentioned and to explain why there has been no significant progress in the last 10 years and what has to be done, what are possible solutions or measures. So enlargement policy is a mix of administrative constraints and geopolitics. So the Balkans are a blank space inside of Europe 
Europe and there is a strong tension because there is a lot of Russian influence but also Chinese influence. So there is this geopolitical uh, importance. But the problem is that the reforms made in the countries are not enough. And in some countries, as Serbia, we even witness backslidings under the authoritarian turn of President Vucic. So if there's no progress, enlargement policy cannot continue. So as Maikon said, reforms have to be made despite of the ge geopolitical necessity. No reform means, means no enlargement is possible. But to come to the second point, that is the reactive nature of EU enlargement policy. The truth is enlargement is, especially since the critical evaluation of the 2004 enlargement, the source of a cleavage among member states. And mm -hmm. due to the rising role of the council, we see that a lot of vetoes have been brought up for, for reasons of bilateral tensions. And The most important point is there has clearly been a lack of a political will in the EU in the 2010s mm. to integrate the Western Balkans and to consider remarkable undertaken reforms in the countries, for example, a judicial reform in Albania. So in this sense, in my opinion, the, the union has to be clear and break the old path of enlargement policy that can be resumed by a joke that was uh, told in Brussels 10 years on. That was that the EU is simulating the will to integrate the countries and that the country are simulating the will to join the <laughs> EU. So this this path has to be broken and the EU has to be clear on its engagements. So if I understood correctly, uh, the problem is that there is little actual effort or commitment to the reforms in the candidate countries and little little political will on the EU side mixed to internal EU political balances. Obviously, there is still a lot of work left for those member state candidate countries to be eligible to join the EU. However, at the same time, several EU leaders, such as German Councillor Olaf Scholz, have called for a treaty reform as a prerequisite for the further EU enlargement. This includes ditching the unanimity requirement in many key areas, a limitation of MEPs in the European Parliament and a compressed commission to remain efficient. In your opinion, do you think the current EU is fit for enlargement? And if not, what needs to change to become finally ready? What do you think, Lucas? So is the EU fit? Simple answer, no. <laughs> But it's not a unique situation, even if the current situation has, of course, strong specificities. But in fact, every enlargement has gone hand in hand with institutional changes. Enlargement means that more parties are at the table. So if you want to enlarging the family. So in my opinion, the EU must be reformed to guarantee future enlargement for three reasons. So first reason, we need institutional changes to be more effective. You mentioned unanimity. Basically, decision making must become more efficient to reduce the risk that one member state can block a decision. I just want to remind that qualified majority voting does not mean that every decision passes. It just means that there have to be more coalitions. And you also mentioned the size of the Commission and of the European Parliament that needs to be adapted. Second reason, We need institutional changes to guarantee more effective geopolitical action of the EU. So we already talked about uh, the geopolitical importance of the Western Balkans, but as the US support for NATO can in the future possibly be questionable, we have a war on the continent, we, beat, we need to be more effective in geopolitical action. So the question of unanimity is also there in common foreign and security policy. And last point, we need institutional changes to guarantee that the requirement that we oppose to candidates, rule of law, are respected in the union. So it's also a question of credibility. Thank you, Lucas, for, your, for sharing your opinion. Now, Maikon, what do you think about the matter? 
Well, I definitely do think that the future of European enlargement demands a multifaceted approach. Negotiation must be firm, emphasizing, for example, adherence to criteria. Trust building rooted in transparency and mutual benefit is essential. Prioritizing education, for example, fosters a shared understanding of European values. Enthusiasm is crucial for commitment and must be cultivated. Cohesion policy remains pivotal in addressing economic disparities. Maybe looking forward, substantial change are imperative adapt to a changing global landscape. Institutional reforms are needed to accommodate a large and more diverse union. A unified European Union of more member states demands thoughtful governance structure. Global challenges necessitate Europeans' role as formidable international player. Building political trust requires consistent communication and collaboration. Treaties may need reform, yes, to accommodate new members. The enlargement process may proceed in groups or individually, but it has to consider candidate readiness. Merit-based enlargement ensures alignment with European standards, of course, but periodic evaluation and adjustment are crucial. Recognizing that now is the current window of opportunities is imperative. As you guys said, you must be reformed, adapted to guarantee a more unified and enlarged European Union. Thank you for sharing your ideas and uh, your point of views. Now, as you know, we collected some questions through our social media accounts to discuss here with our guests, and this is the one we selected. While certain EU accession candidate countries have been waiting for progress in their enlargement perspectives, Ukraine, but also Moldova, have experienced a rapid opening of the negotiations within only one year, backed by repeated statements from politicians who argued that for their very quick admission to the circle of member states. How realistic do you think a quick admission is, and what signal would it send to the other accession candidates? To be honest, I don't know what the future holds for the new members, for the new candidates. But I do think that exploring the relationship between conflict and enlargement is insightful. Addressing the challenges faced by candidates in conflict requires a nuanced approach. And assessing whether conflict acts as a catalyst for a barrier to enlargement is a thought-provoking perspective. What I think is that if Ukraine or Moldova were to experience a quick admission to the EU, it could send a strong positive signal to other accession countries. It might indicate that the European Union is willing to reward and encourage substantial reforms and commitment to European values. However, it's important to know that each country's situation is unique and the circumstances surrounding their accession are considered individually. Lucas, what about you? Even if the reforms and the efforts undertaken by Moldova and Ukraine are indeed remarkable, and I think the opening of the negotiations uh, were a recognition of this, I don't think that quick admission is possible because the obstacles are very high, but also because Ukraine is under war. Concerning the question if quick admission for Ukraine is a good or bad signal for the Western Balkans, to be honest, I think it depends on the country because public opinions in the Western Balkans are not homogeneous. But in my personal opinion, I think it's more a bad signal for these countries that have been waiting for enlargement since 20 years. Yes, I agree. Uh, Also in terms of, so to speak, public relations, there needs to be a certain attention to those candidates that have been on on the wait list for a very long time and that on many occasions have expressed their discontent with the feeling surpassed. Unfortunately, we have reached the end of this episode. Before we end, allow me to thank our two guests, Lucas and Maiken, for joining us today to discuss this very complex but fundamental political matter. I also want to thank you all for listening to one more episode of Talking with the EU, the student's point of view. Until next time. This podcast was sponsored by the Institut d'Études Européennes of the Université Libre de Bruxelles, which we thank for the opportunity of this space. 